Thank you for listening to the Coal Mind Podcast. This is David Cole from Dallas, Texas. It's September 13th, 2020. Today I look at two sets of today's headlines. The first is a theme from the recent Republican convention about the danger of a socialist agenda if the Democratic ticket is elected. The second is a recent documented increase in our federal courts of new wage and hour cases about allegedly unpaid overtime wages. The question I'm going to speak to today is... How can both of these things be true? Doesn't the fact that we have thriving litigation about wages and work schedule suggest that the socialist agenda is already here in some form or fashion? Today, I explore how the Constitution limits government regulation of the free market, and from there, hopefully gain some insight on whether our economy is more socialist than it may first appear. First of the two headline topics for today's podcast was summarized by President Trump at the Republican convention held this summer when he said, This election will decide whether we save the American dream or whether we allow a socialist agenda to demolish our cherished destiny. His daughter Laura further elaborated, or daughter-in-law further elaborated, This is not just a choice between Republican and Democrat or left and right. This is an election that will decide if we keep America America or if we head down an uncharted and frightening path towards socialism. What exactly that frightening agenda involves is open to discussion and debate, but clearly part of it involves economics. And when it involves economics in this particular political setting, it usually means the issue of deregulation. In other words, socialism is used to refer to government action, government regulation, government involvement in the marketplace, that causes an economic market to behave differently than it would if it was simply left to its own devices. I'm going to park any further discussion about what exactly socialism means for a moment. I'm going to turn to the second of the two headlines. The Texas Law Book, which is the leading publication covering business litigation in Texas, recently reported that there had been a surge in new lawsuits under the Fair Labor Standards Act, up 16-20% compared to last year, depending on what part of the state you look at. The FLSA, the abbreviation for that uh, statute, was signed into law in 1938 and it established the 40-hour work week, made it a part of the national economy and sort of an accepted norm, and the idea of a national minimum wage. And of course, it's no coincidence that this uptick in new cases about these issues is coming at the time of this COVID-19 pandemic, when people are out of work, every penny counts, and situations that people might have been inclined to just let slide a year or two ago, now when they need all the resources they can get, they're now investigating all of their legal rights and pursuing them when they might otherwise not have. That leads to the question that I posed in the introduction. How can both of these propositions be true? If we are not at least to some degree a socialist society today, in in the sense that the government is involving itself in operations that would otherwise be left to the free marketplace, how can there be not just litigation to enforce economic regulation, but an increasing amount of that litigation in response to the pandemic? To look for an answer, I'm going to look at two Supreme Court cases that deal with this very subject matter. The first, Lochner versus New York from 1905. The state of New York had a law that required bakery employees to work less than 10 hours a day and no more than 60 hours a week. 5-4 decision, the Supreme Court struck down that New York law as unconstitutional. Specifically, it said that as to a bakery worker, as a citizen of the country, and here I quote, the general right to make a contract in relation to his business is part of the liberty of the individual protected by the 14th Amendment of the federal constitution. The right to purchase 
or to sell labor is part of the liberty protected by that amendment unless there are circumstances which exclude the right. And from there, the court went on to find that the law was, in its words, an unreasonable, unnecessary, and arbitrary interference with the right and liberty of the individual to contract in this area. It reasoned, and here again I quote, there is no reasonable foundation for holding this to be necessary or appropriate as a health law to safeguard the public health or the health of the individuals who are following the trade of a baker. And it went on to conclude with the policy observation that if this statute be valid, there would seem to be no length to which legislation of this nature might not go. 5-4 decision. Four dissenting justices rejected this view of the due process clause and how it interacts with the idea of economic liberty, and Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes's dissent became particularly famous. The most cited portion of it, uh, he observed, and I quote part sections from this part of his opinion. He says, the 14th Amendment does not enact Mr. Herbert Spencer's social statics. The other day, we sustained the Massachusetts vaccination law. Two years ago, we upheld the prohibition of sales of stock on margins or future delivery in the Constitution of California. A constitution is not intended to embody a particular economic theory, whether of paternalism and the organic relation of the citizen to the state or of laissez-faire. It is made for people of fundamentally differing views, and the accident of our finding certain opinions natural and familiar or novel and even shocking ought not to conclude our judgment upon the question whether statutes embodying them conflict with the Constitution of the United States. That's powerful and eloquent language. You can see why Justice Holmes has the continuing stature that he does today. Just by way of explanation, Herbert Spencer was a mid-19th century writer who coined the phrase survival of the fittest. His writing sort of attempted to do some things with Darwin's thinking in the area of economics and social policy. Laissez-faire is a a French phrase, literally means let do. Uh, It's associated with hands-off, free market, deregulation policies. And with those words by Justice Holmes, so ends Lochner. 25 years pass, the economy collapses, and the United States enters the Great Depression. Franklin Roosevelt is elected to try and bring the country back, and he and a supportive Congress pass any number of stimulus laws involving all aspects of the economy and society called the New Deal. But many of these statutes were held unconstitutional under the framework of Lochner that we just examined as violations of economic liberty. Political tensions begin to rise, Roosevelt makes no secret of the fact that he is thinking of a plan uh, to pack the court with additional justices, take it from nine to some higher number, that will let him appoint enough people to give him a majority that will change the court's view of economic regulation. And as that political issue is coming to a head, the Supreme Court, in the opinion I'm about to talk about, makes what some commentators have called the switch in time that saves not and thus avoided President Roosevelt's uh, potential expansion of the court. The specific case on this point, 1937, West Coast Hotel versus Parrish. Another minimum wage law, this time from Washington State on the other side of the country. And now the Supreme Court sees the issues differently. I quote, The legislature of the state was clearly entitled to consider the situation of women in employment, the fact that they are in the class receiving the least pay, that their bargaining power is relatively weak, and that they are the ready victims of those who would take advantage of their necessitous circumstances. Legislative response to that conviction cannot be regarded as arbitrary or capricious, and that is all we have to decide. Very different language from Lochner. 
there are at least three aspects of the language I just read that are in sharp contrast to what the majority had held in the earlier case. The first court specifically looks at the benefits, social welfare benefits of a particular rule of law. In Lochner, it had been uh, the well-being of bakers. Here, it's women's status and the economic uh, market bargaining for the conditions of their employment. Secondly, related to that, it looks at disproportionate bargaining power between women who are relatively new to the workforce at that time in smaller numbers, and it concludes with a practical legal test for cases going forward, the language arbitrary and capricious. That phrase has been picked up and used in many other areas of law involving government agencies. Here it says, basically, as long as legislature is acting rationally and we can understand what they're doing, in the area of economic liberty, it's going to be okay. So in sum, wage and hour legislation, minimum wage laws, once violated the Constitution. That was the so-called Lochner era from the late 19th century Lochner case sort of brought it to its broadest form, which is why that period of time is named for that case. And then in response to the New Deal, whether it was out of concern for the economic situation or in response to political pressure from President Roosevelt, you can argue about that. But the Supreme Court clearly did a 180 and decided that economic regulation was not something that would be strictly scrutinized, but would be firmed as long as it made sense and was not obviously arbitrary or capricious. Does that now make us socialist, to return to the question that I began with? There are dozens of definitions and books out there that try to define that concept and spend hours instead of a mere few minutes going through all that, but it'd be a little off point from the perspective I want to bring to it. If for present purposes in today's discussion, we simply assume that socialism has something to do with some distrust of the market mechanism and assigns some of the functions that a market can perform to government that it would be fair to call us at least somewhat socialist, and that the Constitution has been construed for close to a century now to allow the political branches of government to enact economic policies that could be called socialist under that definition. The socialist agenda that some are concerned about in our national political dialogue today may be a real and dangerous thing, or it may not. That's a question for people to vote on. But if it is a question of whether government has substantial power to regulate the economy for reasons that are sensible ones and are not arbitrary and capricious, that question has been answered and has been answered in the affirmative that government may do so for quite some time now. Today on Coal Mine, we looked at the 14th Amendment's protection of due process and the degree to which that amendment to the Constitution protects economic liberty, in particular the freedom to bargain for wages and hours in the context of looking for a job. A century ago, that provision of the Constitution was viewed by the Supreme Court as essentially preventing that kind of regulation by the government and thus preventing any litigation about it brought by individuals. After some years passed, the crisis of the Great Depression came along, a little political pressure from President Roosevelt, the Supreme Court changed its mind and held that it was permissible so long as it was not arbitrary and capricious, and the law has stayed basically the same on that since the late 1930s. From that legal foundation, we considered the increasing amount of wage and hour litigation that we now have uh, in response to COVID-19, and what that tells us about whether or not the quote-unquote socialist agenda that some are concerned about is a real thing or if it is already here. And it seems clear from these cases 
And the fact that the the laws enabled by those cases are being used to assert rights increasingly in the face of the pandemic, it certainly seems that at least some level of socialist economic policy is not simply permissible, but it's something that government has a great deal of latitude to do under the structure of the Constitution after the late 1930s. You can follow this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, and the other main directories. I want to thank Androvet Legal Media and Marketing, as well as the Texas Law Book, for drawing my attention to the recent developments in this area of law. I appreciate you listening, and I look forward to sharing with you again soon.